Welcome back to our podcast within a podcast, pottering around the freewheeling former Quidditch player who has somehow found himself in a ministry position of Mangum Reeds. We are three muggles who might consider camping if we could make get one of those tents that makes camping not camping. My name is Sarah. I am joined, as always, by my co-host BJ and Spencer. How are you all doing? And so full agreement on the camping point that I can't even possibly express it. And BJ, I know that you do I'm actually go to... camping in the world. Um... I'm going to have to be the odd one out because a camp that smells decidedly of cats is not really what I want to do when I am that out was only in fresh one, air. That was only one of the two tents. Sure. <laughs> um. Um, I, I also like that it was a stylistic choice of the decor. <laughs> yes, there, there were lots of doilies around. Um, so Anyway. Go ahead. I was, I was going to say the same thing. We are uh, <laughs> yes. in chapter seven of... Sarah, your favorite book of Harry Potter. Yes, and we are in one of my very favorite chapters of my favorite book of Harry Potter, and I will brook no opposition in this point. We're not going to oppose you that it is your favorite <laughs> chapter. We will, on the other hand, push you on that subject, as is our job. Okay, well, I have yes. I have points to make, but we are in Chapter 7, Bagman and Crouch. Um one of the longer chapters that we have had, but we do have some segments that we go through here. We have a rapid fire recap, BJ's wizard wheezes, newbies notes with Spencer, we award house points, and then we have questions and queries, um, one of which might be on the relative merits of this chapter in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to start things off, we have a recap, which Sarah, this one seems like it might be a bit of a challenge for you. It is double the length of the prior two, the last few chapters that we've had, and he's pretty densely packed with material. And do you think you can do this under two minutes, I, or are you sticking to the, the hard limit? I honestly I honestly don't know that I'm going to make the two-minute Spencer. I'm not okay. going to lie. So I am not going to make a bet. Um, as per usual in these chapters, particularly these chapters that bring me great joy in the world, I did my notes, practice once, was way over time, and uh, cut out a few sentences and did not try it again. So we are... We are flying by the seat of our magic carpet here. Well, your ultimate success hinges on two minutes. You've risen to the occasion before. Let's see if you can pull it off this time. All right. Do you have your disappointingly plastic stopwatch ready, Spencer? It is so disappointing and it is so ready, so yes. The portkey has taken them to a deserted moor. A wizard in a kilt is manning the entries and directing people to their campsites. Uh, they trek to the campsite and see hundreds of tents, and the whole site is run by a muggle who periodically becomes suspicious of what's going on and has to be casually obliviated every once in a while. After Harry helps Mr. Weasley pay with muggle money, his struggle is what set Mr. Roberts off in the first place, uh, they walk through rows of decidedly unmuggle tents to their campsite. Mr. Weasley is very excited to set up this tent without magic. Once again, the tents look a little, once up, I'm sorry, the tents look a little small for the sheer number of wizards that will be staying there. But when they duck inside, they're full-on apartments, even if a little dated. Harry, Ron, and Hermione set off to get water, while Mr. Weasley sets about making, starting a fire while gleefully talking about anti-muggle security. 
Eyes on stalks walking through the camp. Harry gets to see little wizards with toy brooms, magical folks from all uh, kinds of other countries, and a lot of interesting interpretation of what uh, is actually muggle-like. They run into Seamus from school, who is fully decked out in Irish gear. On the Bulgarian side of the camp, there are giant moving pictures of the team's seeker, Victor Crumb. Back at the tents, Hermione has to show Mr. Weasley how to use the matches, and they finally get a fire going. And Mr. Weasley keeps them entertained with a running commentary on the Ministry Wizards passing by. Ludo Bagman shows up um, to shoot the breeze, wandering around in his old Quidditch robes, and he is enthusiastic, as well as collecting bets on the match. Fred and George bet everything they have on Ireland winning, but Crumb getting the snitch, which strikes everyone as preposterous. Bagman is also apparently on the lookout for Barty Crouch to do a bit of translation. Percy jumps in as Mr. Crouch's underling to inform us that Mr. Crouch speaks over 200 languages. Um, still no word on B Bertha Jorkins, and Bagman seems unconcerned. Crouch turns up and presents as rigid. Percy worships him, but Crouch keeps calling him Weatherby. Crouch is all business. The Bulgarians want more seats in the top box. He's got questions for Mr. Weasley about flying carpet imports, and he is pretty frosty with Bagman for not really doing anything. Bagman also lets slip something about an event at Hogwarts, but even after they leave, Mr. Weasley refuses to talk about it. The kids are entranced by the souvenir carts, and Ron spends all his money before he realizes he could have bought omnioculars. But Harry, finally making use of that wealth, buys a pair for all three of them, getting over Ron's awkwardness by telling him he's not getting anything for Christmas. They meet up with the rest of the family, and then the game is announced. 220. Yes, I did not think that that was going to work this time around. <laughs> but you clearly had fun recounting it. I did. This was this was a joy for me, so I will I will happily take the, the no points for the first time in this book. All right. Well, BJ, now that we've gone through our less rapid but nice recap in terms of this <laughs> chapter, what, what do you have for uh, Wizard Wheezes for us? Well... Um, I have a number of things, some of which are less wheezes and more FYIs. Um, I didn't know what four inches were. Um, and there are a couple of other, like, sort of random, I will say Britishisms, um, that I'm sort of curious whether they're Britishisms or things that really just amuse J.K. Rowling. Um, four inches are pants that go four inches below the knee, um, and haven't been popular since the late 1800s <laughs> yeah it, it's like if you imagine like early golfers those pants they wear or mm. tin tin from mm -hmm. the adventures of tin tin it's those kind of literally four inches below the knee pants that kind of cut off mid-calf mm -hmm. um and they're usually baggy and um all sorts of things um let's see so there was uh a couple of other sort of funny things um there was oh what was it do, do, do. Uh, pen friend, um, which clearly is a pen pal, but just seems very stilted. That is that uh, is way. very much like a, the British term for pen pal. Gotcha. Yeah, and and that makes yeah. sense. Um, but it is kind of funny because presumably the editions that I'm reading are of the non Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, uh, or the Philosopher's Stone, but the Sorcerer's Stone, and so that some things sort of get translated and some things don't is funny to me. Um, Spencer more than Sarah, but <laughs> how often have you seen the spelling of hiccup and how does it make you feel when you read it? It causes me almost to hiccup every time I see it. <laughs> are they it spelling is, it hiccup in this chapter? Yes, Excellent. they are spelling yes. it hiccup. It, it, it is so weird. It, can't, it, can't, it makes me stop every time I see it. It's like, okay, is this a misspelling? Should I flag this? Nope, nope, that's just British. Um, my father <laughs> made fun of me because I, after reading... Um, I guess mostly British books for a while spelled yogurt with an H. 
Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I very often want to spend spell certain things with an OU, um, particularly behavior. Mm. Um, and I have no idea why. <laughs> um, but on to further British things. Um, flutter as a bet. Oh, to have a um, flutter on? Another, yes. <laughs> yes. Fancy a flutter on the match. Um, that one, like, I obviously knew from context what it was, mm-hmm. but I have never heard <laughs> something like that before. Um, and the last one that uh, of the uh, Englishisms, I'm going to say, is uh, Dickie Bird, <laughs> which, as far as I can tell, is just how they referred to small birds. Um, and I assume that this was, like, a vague attempt at uh some cockney i guess instead of not a word but i don't was it is it something along the lines of like don't say a dicky bird about it or something like that basically it was any any news on bertha jorkins not a dicky not a dicky bird Mm -hmm. um so that was sort of like a little spiral that was just like i know exactly what's being tried to communicate here but like i we're we're three layers deep into um britishisms (laughs) that I'm not super comfortable with. <laughs> um, and then I did want to point out that J.K. Rowling's has made gobbledygook an official language, and I'm not sure if that frustrates me more that it is a thing or that she did not put Jabberwocky in there. <laughs> um, so as for the last thing that I did want to mention, um, in the wheezing part of things... Uh, it seems curious that there is an official that we have uh, that seems to be part of the Ministry of Magic who um, is very rigid and well-dressed and kind of terse that has a narrow toothbrush mustache, (laughs) Um, which seems to be an interesting choice for um, somebody in some sort of power here. Uh, But we'll see if this goes anywhere. That is nothing to see here. <laughs> nothing at all. Um, so yeah, uh, th- this was a much more entertainingly wheezeful chapter uh, in many ways. Um, and then a lot of things have generated questions, but that is for a different segment. I did think that you might like the wheeziness of this chapter, BJ. I think that there were aspects that I really enjoyed about this chapter, and there are aspects that really frustrated me. And I must say the... Um, willful disregard of being around muggles (laughs) is just insanity to me like it's like it is a forced plot point rather than something entertaining and but like a lot of the other things were a lot of fun um, in terms of like just seeing wizards sort of interacting on a more normal social level Mm -hmm. is a lot of fun but the like we have to figure out how to do this around muggles and we do this all of the time, but it's a complete failure every time. But we're going to insist on doing it this way rather than many other ways that it seems that it could clearly be done with magic. No, they, they, they insist on doing it for like six hours. By nighttime, they'd just given up according to the text. <laughs> like, ah, screw it, magic fireworks, who the hell cares? We're in the moors. <laughs> I, yeah. I realize that the setup is a, is a little is a little ridiculous. Um, and it had not, it had genuinely not occurred to me how disturbing it is that they really do just 
casually cast memory charms on this muggle throughout the day uh, until this reading of it. But I will say that the effects of wizards trying to figure out what counts as muggle is remains very funny to me. I think it, it would remain funnier if it wasn't so uh, obvious, but there are parts that I find very, very funny. Um, and I think I have a new hero of the series that we will probably never, ever see again. <laughs> Who is it? Um, um, Give us a hand. It's the dude in the dressing gown. It likes a bit of a draft down there. <laughs> I bought it in a muggle shop. <laughs> Muggles wear It's this. like, I clearly did things right. And the best part about it is everybody knows about kilts. <laughs> Well, he likes this floral pattern better. It's Presumably. festive. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, I, there, it's frustrating to me because there are great parts and there are overly contrived parts. Um, so yeah. I definitely see why this is one of your favorite chapters. And I appreciate many of those things as well. <laughs> Thank you for that, BJ. I will take it. Um, I will say though, and I don't, I don't, there, I agree with you that the idea that like they have to be with the muggles is, is, is contrived, although it does form a sort of plot necessary point later in this book as well. Um, right. And I guess that's what I'm saying. Like there, it's like a, it's clearly a plot point Mm -hmm. and it's clearly something that, that, you know, has been sort of stitched together post hoc rather than. Well thought out is not the right word, but not the right phrase. But like, it, it's just uh, I I don't know what it'll end up being, but I feel like that there would might be better ways to have looped this in. That might that might be um, uh, Spencer uh, newbie. Well, this is this is an interesting continuation of a trend I didn't expect after our prologue chapter. Where our prologue chapter was probably the darkest thing we darkest and most you know gothic sudden appearance in Harry Potter we've really had. It really felt different and unique. I was curious whether the book would be continuing in that trend. May happen later, but right now this is really running on what has been several chap- pretty intensely comic chapters that have started this book off. Well, they, we they are have, Weasley heavy chapters. They are Weasley heavy chapters, and they were, and there was a lot of involvement in the Dursleys early too. Mm-hmm. And Dursleys are often associated with being very comic. It's very Tom and Jerry we've seen in those chapters. But the fact mm-hmm. we've continued on after that has been interesting. I wonder if it's meant to be in pointed contrast to our initial prologue to lure us into the same false insecurity that our characters are in. But it has been a kind of funny interlude to have so far. This, this well, also, we yes. do get some name drops that we, get, that... we get the necessary J.K. Rowling foreshadowing of, yes, yes, it's funny, but don't forget this. <laughs> Keep a pin yeah. in this topic, it mm-hmm. will return. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also to have, again, I think somebody needed to teach her of like about foreshadowing or maybe she needed to read books that have foreshadowing rather than uh basically somebody saying i'm foreshadowing something that's gonna come up soon as basically conversation that comes up in this chapter <laughs> there's a thing that you all need to know about and i'm not gonna tell you yet but you'll know soon enough this chapter at times feels like it's in response to reader questions i mean for one it's probably the most intense world building slash expanding chapter we've had yet in lots of little ways mm-hmm. some more direct than others mm-hmm. i mean um for one thing we get to meet foreign witches and wizards really for the first time and I, 
practicing their own cultures. With the, I love the American witches being the most stereotypical you can possibly imagine, in that they're literally camping under an American flag just to indicate we're American and we're proud. The Salem Witches uh, Institute, also, which makes me yes, very happy. That, that's of course it's what Salem, I went to, too. Uh, there, there are uh, no other history of witches in America, according <laughs> to foreign observers. It's just Salem. That's all it is. It's also very funny to me that um, there was a non-sequitur paragraph that didn't go anywhere other than having J.K. Rowling basically hammer it into us that Harry is, like, the most self-centered person ever. <laughs> when he just didn't realize that there could possibly be other schools. Yeah, I mean, and as a follow-up to, like, oh, yes, there are other wizards in the world, and then it's just like, oh, there are other teenagers. I don't know them. Oh, that must mean that there are other wizarding schools. How what? crazy is that? That one, fe- that one feels so on the nose. I feel like it's uh, Harry's briefly being a reader stand-in. <laughs> where that feels like it's one of the moments of where she's gotten so many questions in the mail since the first few books came out, asking, "What about other schools? What about other teenagers? What about other customs?" That she inserted Harry in the place of those readers to share that same question. It yeah. doesn't feel the most organic. <laughs> Harry looks like a Harry looks like a Ron-level doofus when he's saying that kind of line, but. It feels like she's like, okay, I'm answering that question to my readers. And it continues on to a moment that happens a little bit later of where we've talked before about why doesn't Harry spend more money? How does Ron react to that? We get Ron directly reacting to the idea of Harry buying him a gift, mm-hmm. which feels a very point common comment for questions that we've raised previously here about why doesn't Harry buy more gifts for his friends? Why doesn't he support them? We get an explanation for that kind of where Ron doesn't like it. He feels self-conscious about his family. Work. Yes. And I, and I think that th- these two examples are like the perfect two ends of the spectrum on how to deal with showing the reader something or explaining something to the reader where we have, like, there's no interaction with the other teenagers, basically. It's just, oh, there are other teenagers. That must mean that there are other schools. Like, and then, yes. And then we get a much more organic, like, it would have been very nice if a lot more of the chapter was oh, hey, like, I'll get that, like, this is really cool. Oh, I'm uncomfortable with that. Okay, this is why Harry doesn't just, like, drop money all the time. Mm-hmm. End scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so, it, so, yeah, it was. it's a very interesting chapter in terms of, like, what it reveals in terms of, of the world. And um, I wonder if this chapter is just uh, uh, its own bubble and has nothing to do with the rest of the series. Because... <laughs> There are a lot of rule breaking that that is going on here, uh, like underage wizards mm-hmm. using magic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's Spencer. What they are being one is being pursued by his mom because he stole his father's wand. The other two are about to actively be fined by the ministry. Apparently, so there are rules, but this seems like a pretty flexible, you know, Lollapalooza level of event in terms of enforcement of individual laws as they go about it. Yeah, I was gonna say like this does have like a very carnival. As a feel to it like the rules are suspended yeah. to some degree and like partially because it is enforcement is nightmarish. yeah enforcement is nightmarish but also like there is even though enforcement is nightmarish there is also like so much oversight available mm-hmm. that yeah. you can allow a lot yeah. of leeway on the stuff that like doesn't really matter in this situation yeah yeah uh, there's, de- there's well, definitely i guess it's interesting because like in terms of what you say the stuff that doesn't really matter it's like the, there there are things that are oversight, but it does seem like the enforcement of underage magic is uh, about as capricious as underage drinking is enforced in the U.S. Yes, absolutely. 
the main case we've seen before of enforcement of underage magic was with respect to Harry Potter. That may have just been targeted in the sense they were always just watching him over his shoulder in a way. Uh-huh. Um, but another thing I found, though, I was surprised how much of it caught me off guard for world building was just the appearance of children, like you mentioned, Sarah, of where we have never seen anyone really younger than, like, you know, Harry and his immediate circle before. Mm-hmm. And so seeing wizard toddlers, it honestly caught me off guard. This is some realization of, well, this is an aspect of the world I entirely forgot existed. People are yeah. born to this world. They grow up into it. There's years before they go to Hogwarts. And Harry's surprise at that, kind of to go back to both of your previous points, Harry's surprise at that, also as a reader stand-in, but that actually felt or- very organic as well. Um, right. Because he's he's literally never had any interaction other than, like, Jenny, who's just a year younger than them. He's never mm-hmm. had any interaction with, like, wizard children. Yeah, and that that was really nice. And I think that there were some other um, aspects of his interactions that were, are getting better, like how people react to him being Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them clearly sort of know about him, and it's a little bit more of a, like normal like semi-celebrity known about interaction rather than oh my you're harry potter you're the harry potter well okay and they just that's all they say and that's all that like the interaction is mm-hmm. um go ahead spencer well i was just gonna continue on if we're good with yeah please yeah good um i really did enjoy the thrift store reject wizards uh <laughs> of them muggle larping around the moors i was very amused. um I I fully agree. The old man wizard that is really stubbornly proud of the Moomoo that he bought for himself and is not about to give it up, it earned my heart and my love. Of where that man took the time to get muggle money, to find a muggle store, and to buy muggle clothing. And he is certain that it is in compliance with the rules and is not about to give it up. Yeah. Old man wizard, I hope you're the ultimate hero of the story because I want to see you again. Uh... I'm also with you that their their strategy for dealing with the Muggle campsite manager is both abusive and also the most inefficient way they ever could have gone about doing this. (laughs) Well, to be fair, they do have to employ like 90% of wizards in the Ministry of Magic. So basically having people watching other people and then casting memory charms every like 30 minutes, while it might not be an efficient use of manpower, uh, it is the uh, way to have full employment for all wizards. I mean, with how often they need to secure places in the muggle world, you think they'd have muggle corporations or muggle stand-ins, but that would involve far too much involvement with the muggle world, apparently, that only really Arthur is really interested in doing. So I guess like Which is said, another thing that really frustrates me, is like Arthur's inability to do anything muggle-related it started off as a little endearing, but now it's just like this is both a personal interest and a professional interest, and that you can't figure it out is starting to really get not charming. Well, to be fair, I mean, Arthur's job has to do with like essentially like muggle things. And so the muggle money is a little bit difficult to swallow. But, like, building a fire and stuff like that, I there still wouldn't be any reason for him to interact with, like, that process. It's not process-based. It's very, yes. like, so, British Empire, like, these are the things of this culture. I completely agree. And that's where I was going to say, like, the interaction and trying to figure out how, what money is and him not understanding numbers written on, yes. in, like, 
in large that that's where it was breaking down with me i mean the fire thing yes like i understand that and i very much imagine him like taking a long time to figure out how to light a match lighting a bunch of matches Mm -hmm. and then watching them burn like that that scene worked a lot better for me and Um, i will say even having um cop to your point about the the muggle money i don't know how much (laughs) you all have traveled with your parents in foreign countries but the just like shutdown that can happen yeah Mm -hmm. like this is actually not yes not that (laughs) yeah unbelievable to me i say because my mother does not listen to this podcast nor does she know what a podcast (laughs) is despite living in the muggle world and one thing I appreciate about Arthur, about Arthur is that he's so obviously meant to be almost like a parody-based stand-in for, you know, the, the gentry foreign traveler, particularly the English gentry foreign traveler. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He has a fast day with foreign cultures to the point of collecting them, but not understanding yes. He knows he brought the right money with him. He knows vaguely what the notes are, but he's never going to bother to spend the time actually learning how they work. That's far too much investment. He'd, per, he'd prefer to be focused on the novelty rather than the application. Because the novelty it's like is that, interesting. It's um, like British-Japanese ambassador that was just... Um, I think the running joke is that he was the first uh, weeabo, um, but basically was completely obsessed with Japanese culture, but basically didn't understand anything about it, <laughs> but happened to be appointed the ambassador in like the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. And was just... I think fairly reviled by every <laughs> Japanese that he came into contact with while he was there, which and is about on point for you know mm-hmm. British ambassadors. Yeah. But it, it, it's like the it, it's like the famous realizations that the British Museum makes every few years that something that's been labeled for two hundred years in their museum is an entirely the wrong section. Nobody ever really noticed. Mm-hmm. It, it's I can appreciate Arthur just because he's because of how much he represents about that and how much he clearly is intended to about that. Yeah. One thing I will think I, this chapter makes very clear that needs to fundamentally be reformed about the Wizarding World <laughs> is that Muggle studies can no longer be an elective. <laughs> it just yes. can't. It can't. It, it needs to be given every single year that somebody is in Hogwarts, and it needs to be part of the Owls and Newts and every other examination possible and probably a retest every five to ten years to make sure that they can still interact with muggles. Like a driver's license test. (laughs) Yes. Has your eyesight changed? Do you need contacts or glasses? Do you believe that a pinstripe stoop and waiters go together? Yeah, maybe this should actually be a a practical test and it should be a kind of um, like CIA spy operative test. Can you get go through the muggle world for half an hour without getting sussed out as mentally ill? With their willingness of abusing muggle rights that we see constantly throughout these books, why don't they just kidnap a few each year and use them as guest lecturers? (laughs) Just, you know, bring them in to let the students ask them questions for a little bit. It, come on, it'd be fine. Just delete their memory, drop them back where they are in a completely different part of the world. They'll find their way home. It'll be great. I mean, isn't that basically what assemblies usually are? Essentially, yes. With the whole, <laughs> with, with hopefully the whole kidnapping thing being more implication rather than explicit. Sure. Um, we also see that I love the divide that we get in this chapter between the guys that run the ministry and the guys that actually have to work the ministry. Like, the people that are officially in a position of management and authority and those that are on the ground. Because the guys that are in a position of management and authority, particularly Arthur Weasley and Ludo Bagman, 
just waltzing through having the time of their lives. They're on holiday. They've got responsibilities, but other people are handling them. Well, Meanwhile, we've got. I will mm-hmm. say, Arthur Weasley is not on duty. I, I know that he isn't, but I like that the other grunts are surprised and apparently a little bit annoyed that he isn't. Yes, but to your point, Ludo Bagman, very much on duty. This is like his whole thing. And he's got this trail of hangers-on and workers behind them that are clearly haggard, that are clearly barely holding together. And him, meanwhile, having the time of his damn life. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just like the levels of, you know, like, different strata of society that we see at play here occurring in the ministry. Because pretty much other than Barty Crouch and presumably his team, or other than Barty Crouch, what we've seen or heard about the leadership before the ministry is various levels of either in over their head or bumbling incompetence. Mm-hmm. So the question I have is, and I didn't look this up before the podcast, and I very much should have, is when did Boris Johnson become part <laughs> of British politics? Because Excellent question. He does have the, the little bit of the, the, the Ludo-esqueness of, about him. Uh, the weird shock of, of uh, blonde hair that, that uh, very much looks like sort of an out-of-place, overgrown schoolboy, kind of bumbling, like... Effusive and, like, weirdly charming in his way. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, if somebody wanted to paint a thumbnail of, of Johnson and put it in this world... <laughs> Bagman is who it would be, uh, but this would definitely be before he became a little bit more prominent. I wonder also whether it to a certain degree reflects what their respective jobs are in terms of, you know, J.K. Rowling loves to embody personalities in professions or mm-hmm. in roles and mm-hmm. how, the, how the two overlap. Arthur Weasley is kind of in like the forgotten department where nobody really knows what they do and it's kind of off on their own. And he has that similar kind of constant curiosity, happily bumbling thing going into it. Little Bagman's the minister of sport and he's a dumb jock. The two kind of go in hand. Meanwhile, a Bernie Crouch, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's still, it's something with respect to, like, international relations. Yeah, right? it's the Department of International Magical Cooperation. And so it makes perfect sense that he is professional, that he's on top of things, that he has a full and apparent understanding of the Muggle world and its languages, because you can't really get away with being incompetent or being just kind of there in his job. Yeah, he is He is highly competent. We can say it's that. Like, I mean, it, is he like like almost like overqualified? Like, like why isn't that guy running the government? Because no one likes him. Oh, there. Okay, there we go. <laughs> um, so for it, perfectly obvious reasons, but <laughs> we also see that Mr. Weasley just really doesn't kill, care that much about the rules, either for society or his own children. Before <laughs> he's, he's seeing constant abuses and breaking of the law about him. He's seeing, you know, incompetence in among his among his peers and subordinates, and he just consistently just kind of chuckles and keeps walking, mm-hmm. just keeps walking. He meanwhile sees his kids bet their the entirety of their life savings, and all he can do is just kind of whisper to them as if he's negotiating with them that it's a bad idea. Yeah, and can we talk just briefly? Maybe this is in your newbie's notes, Spencer, but just about how crazy this bet is that they make. Yes, this is the next entry of my notes about these guys are betting on a horse that it's like they. These guys are so confident in their bet, it's like they drugged every other horse in the race. It's like, what level of criminal conspiracy are they in that they are betting everything instantly on what appears to be an incredibly off chance? I also want to put in here um, the thing that is kind of insane to me, and Sarah, this, this might also bleed into questions eventually, that muggles, uh, that, that the wizards are intensely patriotic to muggle nations. Yes. 
And it very much confuses me as to what this has to do with anything other than this is clearly a stand-in for Britain and, like, national patriotism in cricket is, like, huge. There's no reason for this to be a thing, but here we are. I, I was with it when I assumed it was cultural. Like when the Irish are just using are just using shamrocks to mm-hmm. mark everything else. Okay, like this is a cultural. Ireland has its own mage and wizard traditions. But the Bulgarians are just waving the Bulgarian flag. It's like that's a Muggle political connection. Why is that there? Yeah. Um, and the stars and stripes for the Salem witches. I mean, just like everything seems to be uh, yeah. Muggle oriented in a way that it shouldn't be. And I assume that it's a sort of like I, I completely take your point. There is no reason for this to actually be a thing. I assume that it has been used as the stand-in because, like, just from a narrative perspective of, like, you need a kind of, this setting requires a sort of national pride. Sure. But to actually Mm -hmm. set that up specifically wizard-based or to set up some sort of, like, affiliation that is wizard-based would take four more books just about how those came about. Um, I I kind of disagree there because I think that if, she talked more, if J.K. Rowling had talked a lot more about the different schools of magic, and then instead of having the national team, you had, like, the Hogwarts team. And, like, if Hogwarts was more of, like, a wizarding sphere of influence mm-hmm. slash wizard province. Okay, that, yeah, that's fair. Um, wait until later in the book, then. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, let's see here. The trend about showing Matt... Ma- about showing muggle spaces and muggle structures and being bigger on the inside is so classic and iconic it always just makes me kind of giggle just because it is always just a way of showing a magical space is that you approach something and it is bigger on the inside it's common in doctor we see it in doctor who we see it in countless other bits of media it always tickles me a little bit. i was really amused that we apparently have found the one condition that cannot be treated by magic you can regrow bones in this magical setting you can replace limbs you can pretty much probably bring people back from the dead but lumbago, lower back pain, not a damn thing we can do about that. That Sorry, not a thing. Talk to a muggle chiropractor, we are as equally useless. I was going to say, condition. to be fair, no one knows how to deal with this. So I really that, that really amused me. It's just that, nope, sorry, that's not unique to the muggle world, that we really can't do anything about lower back pain. That is spread across, spread across even magical cultures. I feel like all of the like normal British complaints are going to be like, untreatable by magic like and gout. so her characters can have them <laughs> a whole bunch of people are gonna have gout um i view this chapter as being with how the various cultures are being portrayed and with how stereotypical they are and how much they're being associated in flags i view this chapter as being very tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. i view it as being much more obviously just winking at the camera probably for the adults that are watching it's like it the kids may not get this joke, but you obviously know this is all just a stand-in for the for the World Cup and international co- competition. Mm-hmm. So I was fine mm-hmm. with it. It's just interesting how stereotypical it can be at times. Like, you know, the fact that Salem witches are, are camping under an American flag. The fact that the one Arabic character we've ever met is selling magical carpets. Yeah, uh, yeah because... Harry Potter ha- is known for its non-stereotypical character naming <laughs> I know, and attributes. I know, it's continuing to the fact, I mean, I really want to meet Victor Crumb at some point, because man, has that guy been trumped up as being interesting so far. That he, we have had this guy described now for at 
least throughout this chapter, th this book. Have we ever heard of him before this book? No, we have not heard of him before this book, but he has so. been, yeah, to your point, he has been mentioned earlier in this book. Well, I assume we're going to mm -hmm. meet him now, and we're now going to meet him in this competition, but with how much he's trumped up, I'm wondering what role he's going to play going forward, because he is apparently... Isn't it Seeker? He is the Seeker, uh, yeah. That's, that's another thing, too. Weren't Seekers previously, like early on with Harry described as being, they're meant to be small and sleek, quick. Yep. And now we have at least two stand-ins that are big, burly jocks in this. Well, it's not clear that uh, Bagman was always yeah, um, big and burly. Big and burly. I, I, that seems to be more of an age thing. I don't even mean him. Um, who was the, you know, um, really popular, described as exceptionally good-looking guy in the last chapter? I'm blanking on his name right now. Oh, he's Cedric Diggory. Yeah, he's also described as being big and, mu and mus muscular and everything else, too. Yeah, he is but, He is bigger. Um, and, it, and it was pointed out that he was an oddity in some ways in that regard. But now yeah. we've got Victor Crumb, apparently. Apparently there's a whole new body type in Seekers that people just haven't really thought of before that's just now starting to catch on. Yeah, and we'll... It's like gymnastics, Spencer. <laughs> like, you know, they start out, like, a little bit, you know, and then they, they'll progress into, like, a different body shape is a little bit more accepted. Or, or ballet, where, you know, there, there was a... What everybody presumed was reasonable. They're, like, all sports seem to undergo this. Uh, basketball, basketball, for we are going back a really into... long time. Yes. Um, was considered a short, like, live man sport. And then and it wasn't. Because they figured out that you can just that's not how physics ground, works. Yes. Or anything. Wait, how high is the basket again? <laughs> Let's rethink this. Um, we get, for one of the first times ever, we get uh, several different departments in the Ministry of, Ma mm -hmm. Ministry of Magic. Mm -hmm. Of where, previously we'd heard a couple, like, you know, where Arthur works and everything else. But this time we get a list. We get the Goblin Liaison Office. We get the Committee mm -hmm. on Experimental Charms. We get, we've heard the thing before about the Accidental Magical... Re Ma accidental Magic Reversal. Yeah, like, and the Committee on... Like, they seem to not be good at their jobs in general, and that seems to be another Britishism. <laughs> the, fa the fact that the one representative we see is walking around with horns? <laughs> yup. Uh, Sometimes I, you get cursed. I don't know what to tell you. It, these things happen, and honestly, we hire people to do this rather than the rest of the world. Right. Uh, I, I don't think we. I did not remember that the members of the Actional Magical Original Squad are referred to as a, a, Obliviators, which is one of the better names for a job I've ever heard of before. <laughs> mm -hmm. po possibly overpassed by the Unspeakables. Yes. Of the Department of Mysteries. The Department of Mysteries. Yes. And I will. This is not a, a huge spoiler because this is such a cool name. How could it not be? But the Department of Mysteries is a thing you should remember for later books. Oh. Uh, I, I was going to say, I'm not at all surprised. Mm -hmm. This seemed like a, you know, big red arrows pointing here, uh, kind of like the joke about NSA being no such as an agency. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that was this. Um, but it is the coolest name of anything we have encountered. Yes. Between the Department of Mysteries and the fact that individual employees probably referred to as the unspeakables, mm -hmm. that's just great. They, they didn't even need Arthur Weasley, you know, like you said, BJ, turning and winking at the camera about, oh, I don't even know what they do, to just do flashing warning lights around it. If you never name something the Department of Mysteries, that is the ultimate Chekhov's gun. That thing cannot <laughs> remain unfired if you put that on the stage. Um, I am going to aggressively put forward uh, Percy as being the loser of this chapter because, <laughs> dear God, does he uh -huh. have a bad day. Uh -huh. uh, it, it, it is bad. I mean, between realizing that he is, you know, aspiring to a goal that a lot of the leadership of the Ministry of Magic just do not represent, just, just Chris, his increasingly crestfallenness about Ludo Bagman is just funny. But then, I, I want to put forward that while Percy had a bad day, 
Weatherby had a pretty good day. <laughs> Weatherby had an okay day, but the fact that Weatherby did means that Percy had the worst day of his life. Not only did his hero, Barty Crouch, refer to him by the wrong name, but he did so in front of his entire family. Uh, yeah, After- and particularly Fred and George. Uh, they're never yeah. going to let... Already in this chapter, they're ragging him, and they're going to keep that going for years, because we've had Percy just constantly trumping that Barty Crouch is his hero, that Ludo Bagman is incompetent, which, you know, point, points points for credit. Apparently, he really, really is from what we see in this chapter. But the fact that his hero just has no idea of his existence is just a dagger in a wound that you then poured salt in. It's funny. The, the fiction in my mind, however, was that he was like, I 100% do not want to be associated with my father, mm-hmm. and so I'm going to give him the wrong last name. It's You know, it's funny that you say that because I was just just about to say, like, it's, it's funny that, like, Barty Crouch actually seems to sort of respect Arthur Weasley. Maybe doesn't yeah. view him like exactly on his level, but seems to seems to respect him as like a reasonable member of the ministry that well, he can work with, like someone who does well, his job. I, I really agree, and I like that touch because as much as Arthur we've seen before can be a bit bumbling, be mm-hmm. a bit just almost childlike in his amusement at various small things. We've had no indication that he's not really good at his job. Like it's a forgotten department, but he takes it seriously and has a lot of influence and a lot of pull more than he otherwise represents from his appearance. Yeah. And so it was a nice scene to have, you know, Barty Croucher aggressively go up to Little Bagman and essentially accuse him of not doing his job, and then sees Arthur and immediately starts talking with Arthur about legitimate things they need to handle and they're concerned about, and start coordinating with him on the subject of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like so kind touch. of like a professor of a math department. Like, they're still there. <laughs> I'm presuming that they do a good job and you talk to them, but like... They're kind of bumbling. Like, I don't know. Like, do they really have a place in modern education? Like, 50, you know, 70 years ago, like, it makes sense, but... It's true. In my various schools I've attended over the years, I've never seen, like, the mathematicians serve in any role in administration. That's just not been part of my job. But they've always been lovely and, and, you know, seem to do a good job at whatever it is they do. But no one really questions what it is they do because it's, you know, outside of them. And no one asks them to do anything else. Yes. Um, Seems perfectly reasonable to me. Wrapping things up, but uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher the probably pronunciation of this, but omnioculars? Omnioculars, uh, yes. Seem like the greatest invention ever known to man and Wizarding World. Yes. They are very, Please. very cool. We get to see them in action, I think, in the next chapter. Uh, I mean, can we just have those for day to day life in other ways? You know, having those for bird watching would be lovely, right, BJ? Um, it's, mm-hmm. They seem like. Speaking it, of. Um, I, I'm stopping. What? So I, I had I have a quick question for you, uh, Sarah. Um, it concerns so me that you don't know who, who needs to answer this question. Well, I'm just trying to decide which one of you is more likely to know the answer, so I don't have to continue googling, and which one of you is more offended by this if it is a problem. But is is uh. Omniocular, one of those terrible Latin and Greek uh, portmanteaus that that, oh. that are a no-no. Great question. I don't know. Um, I don't know. They are they enough. are awkward to say, but in the way that wizard things are frequently awkward to say. So I don't. I'm not sure. Um, but Polly is definitely Greek. 
and ocular seems to be Latin, so I would guess that omni is Latin, so it might be one of those things that worked out okay. Anyway, sorry Spencer, yes, it is a lovely, a lovely thing that would be very useful in sort of everyday life, and if there is a reason that Harry can't have these as normal spectacles, <laughs> I would like it explained to me in great detail. You would like for um, Harry to have the short-lived Google Glass for his... <laughs> Yes. These things are as useful as, you know, like Geordie LaForge's visor in terms of the amount of things you can do with this. It's just like, please, why don't people just wear these around everywhere? Other than, like you said, Sarah, if they just fall into the Google Glass category for you to get punched if you wear them too often. Mm -hmm. And maybe have the worst battery known to man. Uh, Options. Last thing for me, but I love Harry's, as much as we make fun of Harry being a doofus sometimes, he is actually really astute in dealing with others in a way that I forget of where when he sees that Ron is uncomfortable with a gift, he immediately spends it. He yes. immediately laughs it off where, no, this is this is me buying you birthday gifts for the next 20 years kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that is such an effective way of dealing, of both reading and dealing with a friend's discomfort that I was really touched by it. Again, that, it's a further example about Harry really has a lot of the social intelligence that sometimes his friends lack. And he wields it well of where he really expertly did with a friend that getting self-conscious and, and turned it into a laugh they all could share. So mm-hmm. kudos to him. We actually but, get a number of instances in this chapter of people just being kind, which yeah. we don't, you know, we've talked about much to my displeasure and discomfort in, in other <laughs> chapters and episodes <laughs> um, uh-huh. about uh-huh. just how oblivious our teenage characters can be. But Hermione is very kind to Mr. Weasley over the course of this chapter. Yep. Um, I, I, Sarah, that what she did with the matches so reminded of you helping me out with either, <laughs> with you helping me out with the Nashville hot chicken, where she even had the exact tone of voice and she approached him and says, oh, oh, honey, let me help you. <laughs> let me take those from you. <laughs> it, was, it was so on point. I, I, yeah. I have not tried to figure out Let's... exactly why, why this moment struck me so much but spencer you're right i've lived this before <laughs> so Do, try not to burn yourself honey let me take that away from you <laughs> that is a really good call that i really haven't put two and two together on it where this is just a chapter of people being good to each other mm-hmm. everyone's happy everyone's here for the same purpose of being happy and they all seem to want to support each other in being happy so, so long as you ignore the fact that there are some really heavily overworked ministers of magic that are plainly not getting overtime for what they're doing. Sure. But, you know, people so are even th- civil to Percy in this chapter. Yeah. Yes. So is the reason that this is, is your favorite chapter is that it never happens again? Yeah. <laughs> this oh. is our one brief glimpse into the sort of actual niceness of people. <laughs> There's an element of that, perhaps. Yes. But. Sarah, I did really enjoy this chapter. I view it as being very tongue-in-cheek, being very mm-hmm. surreal to a certain degree. I'm almost more than any other chapter we had. I'm really looking forward to seeing this put on this because it is so bright. It is so colorful. There is so much activity and everything else occurring in the background that as much as it does jump off the page in terms of descriptions, seeing it portrayed in live action, I'm sure is going to be a delight. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that you will enjoy it. This is one of those kind of, one of the disappointments in the translation to the movies is that just time-wise, there is not a lot of opportunity to spend as much time as a chapter in this scene, but we do get hints of it. This feels like the example of- Does Archie show up? (laughs) He does not, much to everyone's displeasure. Okay, well, I might be out on the movies now. (laughs) I didn't, I will, I will point out, I did not say that this was my favorite movie of them all. (laughs) Oh, that's a, that's a fun question to address at a later date. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But it, this almost seems like it would be better served by an episode of television, yes. where you could just dedicate you could dedicate the entire hour just to exploring this sudden new world we've entered, the sudden opportunity to just have fun on this perfect movie, perfect mm-hmm. setup episode, right? Yeah. yeah. As a movie, you can't dedicate more than five minutes of background to this. Right. You've got other main plot points to go to. Yes. Okay. Well, Sarah, I've kind of maybe sandbagged you with respect <laughs> to who loses this chapter, but who wins? It's, so I, I will actually start out by saying that I completely agree with your loser of the chapter. Poor person. <laughs> I mean, I realize that he's un- insufferable um, and he has all kinds of other p- problems in the world, but he does... He does work really hard at his job. Yeah. And yeah. He... and I think this is the first time that Percy has a losing chapter where it's something that he's actually trying for rather yes. than like him yeah. not being able to be a jerk to people. Yes. This is actually not his fault. Um, well, I mean, maybe in the grand scheme of things, it is his fault in some way, shape, or form. Sure. But like... He didn't do anything to deserve no. this, by all, for all intents and purposes, and by all metrics that we know. He works really hard at his job and does not seem to be yep. bad at it. Um, and for Barty Crouch to just dismiss him in this way, in front of his yeah. family, like I it's mean, really difficult. Yeah, I, I still have affection that that he gave the wrong last name. That actually um, makes me feel a little better about the situation. Yeah, and like he just didn't want that to come out in front of his family, yeah. and. And is I and like in my head, it's just he's completely relieved that it's just like oh they think that he got my name wrong rather than I don't want to be associated yes. with you. Po- points in favor of that theory. Barty Crouch seems legitimately surprised that he's there before he just saw yeah. the entire Weasley family and he's suddenly like confused that Percy is present. And this mm-hmm. was the, yeah, this was my other point about that I forgot to bring up um, about Barty Crouch respecting Arthur Weasley. Is that how do you not know that Percy is is Arthur's son at that point? Yeah, which, which, which I think both works for and against BJ's theory. For in the sense that it could explain that, Ar- that yes. Percy has been involved in an elaborate plot. Against in that it says that Barty Crouch didn't do his research, which doesn't seem to necessarily be in character. That does that is not in character. And like everyone, for all for all that all of the wizards coming out of Hogwarts seem to be employed at the ministry in some way, shape, or form. Everyone knows Arthur Weasley. Like, he's he's known in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems astonishing to me that per, that uh, Barty Crouch wouldn't know that Percy is Arthur's son. I don't know. It could, it could suggest a certain degree of just maybe even shyness on Percy's part. Where he hasn't been part of his department for very long. He may never have gone over to him and said hi. That maybe. Who knows? Although it, it seems it, I, it seems that he's kind it like actually kind of Barty Crouch's direct number two, and Barty Crouch is also kind oh, of an asshole. Worse. So oh. I, that I mean, their relationship is unclear. Look at it like the Sheen family, where <laughs> Emilio Estevez, yeah. like sure, Stage n- name. not everybody puts two and two together. It took me a long time to figure that out. No matter how you square this, it's just humiliating. Yes, it which it's always painful for me because I. I for a lot of reasons, I see a bit of myself in Percy, and <laughs> man, man, does he have chapters of where he is the sad sack of this book. Yeah, it's this one is particularly particularly bad, to your point, Spencer. Um, mm-hmm. So, ultimate loser. We do see more of Percy in this book, so we'll see if he ever wins a chapter. <laughs> um, and I will submit for winner of this chapter, Arthur Weasley. Yes. Because... Yes. It, there is absolutely no reason that he is not working, and for him not to be working, this is the best thing ever. He is he is both not working 
And he is, to be fair, and in the loose rules that seem to be being enforced at the, the campsite that he is living in for the moment, um, he is nevertheless self-imposing a bunch of rules about doing things the muggle way and is having a ball. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. this is Arthur Day. He gets to fiddle around with Muggle stuff, and it's not only it's not only an option; it's required. Mm-hmm. He he gets the best campsite. It's right next to where they have to go. He gets box seats at the game given to him for free by a guy he doesn't even work for or directly work with, who's just apparently a nice dude that wants to give him stuff. Arthur is winning life for this chapter almost to the degree that gets me worried in the same way whenever Harry wins life. But, <laughs> Is Arthur going to lose a kid next chapter or something? What balances out these books in, these ser- in this series? Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. But for, for the confines of this chapter, Arthur Weasley clearly the winner. Although, you know, it was not. it's not a particularly easy choice because this is just a genuinely good chapter yeah. for a lot. Like, Harry had a great chapter. Yeah. Other, other than Percy and a few just, you know, barely named employees, everybody's having a good day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, but I will, I will give it to Arthur for um, the immense joy that he gets during this chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of joy. Is that, is that your word for it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Question, so, questions. So I, think, um, I don't know if Spencer is this way, but I actually don't have many questions from this chapter. Yeah, I got a couple. That's about it. Okay. It, it, it's mostly just about just gorgeous visuals and immersing yourself into a large bit of world building. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I'll start out with one about, do we ever get more of an explanation or it's just an off joke about while, why magic carpets are viewed as a muggle artifact that is prohibited by the registry of prescribed charmable objects? Nope. <laughs> and why brooms are okay, but carpets aren't? Nope. Is this purely just protectionism about brooms are a British export and they're not going to let anybody else come in? Cause like, I think it is, be, yeah. Based on the description we get from Barty Crouch, it wasn't always even that way. No, he, he remembers having uh, the family carpet. Yeah, an, so, a- an axe minister, which is apparently a British carpet company. Mm-hmm. Or... How do wizard families get about? So I think it's all by flu um, travel at this point, which it also seems like a little bit protectionist to that regulatory network i'm not sure (laughs) yeah i mean like or they walk i guess because like presumably there's a point where it's very hard to keep a child on a broom and they're not quite ready to broom themselves or maybe they call the night bus sure i mean i almost view this as just the ministry had enough instances of people getting caught by muggles flying freaking carpets around that they just banned them out of sheer annoyance that one that one is difficult because it, it does start then to fall into the category of arthur weasley's flying fort anglia which is a nice family way of travel and yet is plainly mm-hmm. prohibited yes very visible in the world so I figure it's an element of that, and they probably someday want to do the same thing to brooms, but there's just enough, enough, enough popular and sports pushback on the subject that they can't. Yeah. Uh, but everything else is just, you know, outlawed because it's just too damn obvious and the muggles are looking up now. Yeah. And it is, like, while there are some people, the rare few people who do a long trip on broom, it is clearly not the norm. Um, if you are If you are a qualified wizard, you mostly apparate or use flu powder, um, and brooms are mostly used 
honestly, they're mostly used for Quidditch. There is there is some kind of local transport that happens on brooms, but it's not meant for long distance travel. I kind of pictured brooms as almost being a stand-in for like a bicycle, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. you know, get you around town, around your neighborhood, but not really intended necessarily for longer than that, unless you're competing. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, I, I, I could probably stop there when it comes to questions, other than how on dear God's green earth can Bertha Jorkins still be missing, and no one has sent out anybody to look for her. A, a yeah, great it's question. kind of like a. Mm-hmm. But it, it really just shows again just how utterly powerful the individual minister that someone like Little Badman could be missing in employees and missing for weeks, but it apparently is his sole oversight in terms of whether anything's done about that or not. And I would like to, and stop me if I have talked about this on a previous episode. I know I've, I've thought about mentioning it, but I'm not sure if I have. But on this reread and, and talking it over with you all, like obviously... The the discussions of Bertha Jorkins are like a screaming indicator that I should be paying attention to this. But mm-hmm. as a kid reading this, mm-hmm. we get back to Bertha Jorkins kind of later in the book. And yeah. it was a complete, like, I couldn't remember who, as a kid reading this, I couldn't sure. remember who Bertha Jorkins was. A lot of it, it's very true. A lot of this is foreshadowing that, you know, older or adult readers can catch, maybe even to assist their children later with remembering. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it, it is it is actually a shock to me reading this at 32 years of age that um, that Bertha Jorkins is so heavily featured in these early chapters. <laughs> and it's also an interesting choice that, like, it sounds like she just doesn't come up for a while and then comes up again. Yeah, we don't hear about um, her for, like, many, many chapters. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. So, anything else we want to talk about? Um, I think... We want to talk about the next chapter. <laughs> yes, we are. We are now at the Quidditch World Cup. Um, do they have ashes? What? <laughs> Is that a spoiler? Do they have ashes? I don't know what you're talking about, BJ. I yeah. feel so very oh, dumb. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Sorry, that's fine. All right, let's. Next time we have chapter eight, the Quidditch World Cup. <laughs> Sarah, we had, we had a moment in this podcast where I wasn't the only person baffled. No, I feel really stupid. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, um, that's as good a place to leave it as any. <laughs> well, Sarah, I wish you luck with what apparently is a 21-page chapter next time. Oh, so no. So we're getting into long chapters as we go on from here. I it's a, a Spoiler, it's a lot of Quidditch. I don't think it's going to need much recap from me. I want to play by play. If you are the commentator, <laughs> all right. I'll put up put my Lee Jordan hat on and see if you, as Professor <laughs> McGonagall, gets mad at me. <laughs> if you take a very biased stance in the game, you're damn well right. I will. <laughs> but until then, y'all, this was a very fun chapter. I'm looking forward to the next one. And yeah.